0: Welcome friends to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Mocock-flavoured podcast. On this show, which is a cheeky one we've slotted into the itinerary, Oliver Brackenbury returns to Derry and Tom's to talk about the next phase of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. Oliver was last on Breakfast in the Ruins ahead of the Kickstarter for issues 1 and 2 early last year, with issue 1 having an all-new Michael mocock Pendelric tale, so if you missed out on that you need to listen in and find out the details. And they're also packed with lots of other fantastical goodness too, from not only established authors and artists, but also fresh new talents. We seem to be living in a golden age of sword and sorcery and sword and planet short story collections at the moment, with our good friend Anthony Paconti being published in Tales of the Shadow Men Anthology number 19, and David A. Riley's Parallel Universe Publications Anthology series, Swords and Sorceries, Tales of Heroic Fantasy, hit in Volume 7 just a couple of months ago. To name but two there are so many more i could mention but i do have to discipline myself because i still have four volumes of skelos the journal of weird fiction and dark fantasy sitting in a pile from when i bought them three years ago and i haven't got to any of them yet it's a slippery slope but we're here to talk about new edge and there are some more wonders in store including an all new tale for a classic character that dates back to the dawn of the genre so refresh your coffee pot and sit back as we get the skinny on the next phase of New Edge Sword and Sorcery with Oliver Brackenbury. All right, so, well, we're back at Derry Tom's, and we're welcoming back screenwriter, author, and editor of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine, Oliver Brackenbury. Oliver, great to have you back. How have you been?
1: uh doing well it's really nice to see you yeah no i'm whew, this year's crowdfund for new issues uh has me uh, with a big smile on my face uh last year it took us 27 days to get the minimum we did it in just under 72 hours this time uh and it was a bigger minimum so uh yeah i'm i'm really happy it's uh we're absolutely going to be bringing people uh new stories new articles new art scads of new art we've we've hit double art for a stretch goal um Fantastic. and that means among other things uh your listeners in particular will appreciate we have um a reprint of a Michael Moorcock story uh, this time around, Uh, but once again paired with fresh new art uh, by Sapro, who you would have seen uh, her Ah, illustrations in issue one with The Folk of the Forest.
0: Mm. Well, I was going to bring up Sapro's artwork, actually, as well, um, because it really is terrific. Um, So what's the... I'm going to ask you about your interactions with Moorcock shortly, but what's the Moorcock reprint?
1: This is where uh, the salesman in me wants to be coy. (laughs) I haven't actually said anywhere online so far. I've just been saying an obscure reprint. It's not part of the saga collection. I can say that much at least. But I'm sure yeah. to you know serious collectors, I mean there's nothing obscure. Um ah, oh
0: god, cut this out. I'm just having an early you, morning you brain don't problem. Have, you don't have to give the game away.
1: Okay, okay. If if you don't if, if you don't mind, sorry. I was going. To, uh, yeah, why was saying cut this out, uh, listeners? I was going to go to remind myself of the name because uh, I've got a new puppy waking me up at four every morning, so it, the, the name escaped <laughs> me for a moment. Uh, I do remember now, but yeah. If you if you don't mind me being a little coy, uh, just because I, I I mean it would be a shame. I think if someone only wanted to buy the magazine for just the reprint and goes, well, I've already mm. got that one, so I won't bother. Mm. Um, because as I say, it will be paired with original art. Um, and maybe something else I'm still trying to negotiate. We'll see. But if, at a minimum, new art, uh, two pieces. Um, and a lot, as I say, all kinds of other incredible works. Uh, I mean, in terms of the classics, I have to think there's at least a few more fans who also appreciate C.L. more. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the, sort of the big spearhead this year is that uh, we have an authorized uh, new Jarela Jaree story, uh, you know, working uh. with the estate. Um, first in 85 years, it'll be a novel-length tale, uh, well it is, it's been written, um, called Jarrell and the Mirror of Truth, written by Molly Tanzer, who, among other things, edited um, Cthulhu versus, um Oh God, Swords versus Cthulhu, still waking yeah. up, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, I'm really impressed with that, so yeah, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff to enjoy in the magazine this year round.
0: Hmm, terrific. Yeah, we'll we'll maybe talk a little bit about CL more shortly, actually. But I did want to ask... We should point out to everybody as well. Well, two things. One is I never cut anything out. So um, there will be nothing cut. It's warts and all. Everything goes. And the other thing is um, the... I've completely forgotten. So I'll probably... Maybe I will cut things out because now I'm forgetting. What we should point out is you've only just got out of bed. And for me, it's 2.30 in the afternoon or 2.45 in the afternoon on a Sunday and I'm full of fucking gems and feeling like my eyes want to close so we're probably both going to have forgetful moments but you know what we'll battle <laughs> through it together we'll battle <laughs> through it together oliver but congratulations on the successful launch of of new edge and sword and sorcery issues one and two which was a successful kickstarter last year of course and that's the last time we spoke was when you were in the were you in the run-up to launching it or had it launched I can't uh, you know remember. i can't remember it might
1: i might have been a bit more ahead of the game last year and we we did it a little in the run-up uh yeah mm. and then like you know I've got no regrets about uh, the results, but it was very stressful for the first twenty six days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was two days straight, we were just stuck at seventy nine percent and I just was staring you know bullets through my computer uh but uh you know, we pulled over and then really got excited once you're over eighty. It's interesting seeing the psychological effect of numbers you know uh, on people mm. um and then whew, off, we, off we went pretty much through the last week and and just in those, the final hours got double art, which I was really happy about because. You know, uh, this year we once again uh, had a double art stretch goal uh, rather than making it, you know, baked into the minimum fund. Uh, and that's just because I wouldn't kill the magazine over it, right? If we only had to have mm. one illustration per thing, fine. But my personal minimum, my, you know, the minimum in my heart is is double art because mm. uh, I really do enjoy the art direction. I really do think having lots of gorgeous art is what sets a magazine apart, you know, from most of the novels and anthologies, right? It's, to me, it's a big part of the point of the thing. Um, And also, uh, I've gotten people used to it now. (laughs) With issues one and two, they'll be expecting it. You know, every story had at least, you know, some kind of like nice big title page, essentially. Uh, You know, some of the artists went almost more like movie poster in their design Hmm. uh, right at the beginning. And then, you know, you get a second nested thing, uh, you know, showing you a specific scene or maybe even the ending uh, deeper in. Um, so, yeah, and this year is, is no different, thankfully, uh, because if we just cleared that goal. And if you go to, uh, we're on Backerkit this year. We switched from Kickstarter. Um, I could drown you in crowdfund minutia for an hour at least. Uh, mm. So let me just say, uh, if you've ever used Kickstarter, there's actually a pretty good chance you already have a Backerkit account because Backerkit mm. has actually been around for 10 years. They started as a company that would help uh, people with Kickstarters fulfill the Kickstarter. Um, mm-hmm. And they would let you charge for shipping later and all kinds of other things. Uh, and I used them last year. So if you back just in 2023, you, you probably already have an account with them. If you back just about anybody, anybody, Goodman Games uses them, you know. Um, so it's a super easy transition for people who want to check out the campaign and maybe support it. And making a new account takes two minutes. It's not a biggie. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just overall better, I find, and there's a whole bunch of under-the-hood stuff that only I'm going to care about, really, and other and people who want to run crowdfunds. But for people who just want to check out some cool stuff, uh, part of what's fun about it is it gives me a lot of tools to make it kind of more like a party. Now, obviously, mm. the subtext of a crowdfund is you spend 30 days saying, please give me money. Um, <laughs> uh, but I like to try and make it more than that. And so we've been having uh, lots of uh, – it's like a big community tab. You can have lots of uh, conversations, like a little forum just among people who are enthusiasts of what's being funded. Uh, mm. on the page, and then also uh, it makes it really easier, much more simpler uh, than with Kickstarter to do live streams. Mm. So, you know, we had kind of an opening launch party, and, like, yesterday we did a live stream conversation with Molly Tanzer all about CL Moore and that. Uh, we're actually um, trying to, you know, make build community, right? So I, I thought about it, and there's, like, have you ever heard of a, a musical uh, genre, sort of a niche thing online called Dungeon Synth?
0: Yes. Yeah. So, in fact, uh, if we just look over my shoulder here, Dungeon oh synth yeah. Cassettes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well,
1: maybe we should talk yeah. after because uh I'm still trying to build uh the roster. We're gonna have a Dungeon Synth party uh oh, live stream nice. and have like a daisy chain of musicians where I'll chat with them for 10-15 minutes about Sword and Sorcery and Dungeon Synth, and yeah. then we'll play one of their songs, like a music video or them performing live. We'll see, and just do a few of those in a row just to have something really different, you know, a reason for everybody to get mm. together and just enjoy this all this stuff we like. Uh, Until finally, I can now confirm, we just set this up recently, um, on the last Friday night of the campaign, which I should mention, the campaign ends 8am Eastern Standard Time, March 16th on Saturday. Mm Um, but the Friday night, we're going to take something we did last year and build on it. Last year, we did a final Friday night, like telethon, right? Uh, mm. Just me and the guys. And we we all you know did a shot every time we hit some new marker or whatever, uh, chatting with people and stuff. But to make it more than just, you know, a bunch of faces blathering, um, we had a bit of a fun game where I grabbed a hold of one of those early 80s uh, romance D&D choose your own adventure books that they put out mm. as part of their sort of outreach to try and bring in more women. Um, and we just had a bit of fun where I, I read from that and the audience would know, like, oh, kiss him or, you know, go down that door, <laughs> you know. Um, and I thought, how can I build on that for this year? Well, there's a lot of things, dots connecting here. But in a nutshell, um, the reason I even thought to try for Jarrell and Jere was because in 22, I saw a very successful Kickstarter for a role playing game setting called Black God's Kiss, which, if you know, mm-hmm. is the name of the first, my uh, most well known story uh, mm-hmm. of Jarrell. And uh, at first I just thought I really liked their artist, uh, Saprophile. Uh, not Sapro, I have two artists that begin with the same five, have mononyms with the same five letters at the beginning, easy to get confused. So Saprophile uh, did the, the art for that campaign, I thought it was beautiful, brought her in. She did uh, art in issue two uh, for Gemma Files' story. She's obviously coming back this year and obviously I'm assigning her to the C.L. Moore story uh my point um, is i then built on that this last spring and i went hang on if they got the rights it took me a whole year i'm very intelligent uh (laughs) i thought if they've got the rights to do a role-playing thing with Real, i wonder if i so you know a few emails later uh and and some you know things get signed some money exchanged hands and voila right i got the rights to do this story so i thought well wouldn't it be perfect to tie it all together in a bow in our final big telethon live stream and we've got one of the guys behind that game Coming onto the live stream as a special guest, uh, game master, and they're going to run us through a two-hour uh, like Black Gods Kiss scenario. And if the stars align, Molly is uh, going to be at a convention. But if she can sneak away for two hours, Molly Townsend herself, who has just had to get in the headspace of Jarell for her story, will play Jarell in the adventure that you everybody will get to watch and shout at. Uh, so yeah, I so you see what I'm saying about how like. Um, you know, without being too corny, and saying, it, I suppose, uh, I just trying to make it a real fun party and make it, make it, a, you know, a really good time. So, I think uh, if nothing else, that might be reason for people to check out the crowdfund On top of you know the issues of the magazine, uh, you can get back issues from last year as an add on, so it's easy to get caught up. Uh, mm. And just for fun, we made a, a rainbow metal enamel pin of our logo. So each one's unique, and each one has a
0: completely different spill of color over it. So yeah, lots of
1: fun stuff. Lots of fun mm.
0: stuff sometimes the stars just align don't they and i've got to say i i completely missed the fact that there was a black god's kiss role-playing game out there is that kickstarter i mean i'm guessing that Kickstarter must have concluded obviously because you know time has elapsed but is, has is that has that been fulfilled is that out there and available for people uh,
1: they are almost there like a lot of role-playing things i mean this is no shade on them it takes a minute uh, to fill mm. it there's a lot more moving parts uh, than say me and my magazine um, but I do know two things. One is that I believe the expected fulfillment um, is June uh, or somewhere in that neck of the woods. But uh, what I know for a fact is they do have a pre-order store, right? This is something else. Like they're using Backerkit on the back end, uh, like a lot of people. And so what that lets you do, uh, one of the many reasons kit's nice to use is that you do your crowdfund, and you, when you're doing your crowdfund, you really want to make sure you have lots of reasons to make the crowdfund itself special. So if you, you back us in our crowdfund, you know, there's exclusive stuff I, I didn't even get into, you know, it's fun stickers and things. Uh, yeah. A rub-on tattoo of our logo I did for fun to everybody <laughs> for getting us done in 72 hours or less. Uh, yeah. I, I looked into it, it as easy, why not? Um, so lots and lots and lots of fun exclusives in the crowdfund to make sure that's like, you want to do that. But if you miss it, um, then you can have between the crowdfund and the final fulfillment of the thing you can have a pre-order store so people can still sneak in later and maybe they won't get the exclusives and maybe it'll be a little more expensive it depends on how people choose to run their pre-order store Uh, they can still order the thing so that when the fulfillment for the original campaign happens they too will get shipped uh, a copy of the game or the magazine or the whatever it is that's being crowdfunded so yeah i can provide you a link to that pre-order store and put that in the show notes if people want to check it out
0: Oh super yeah well I want to check that out personally I'm sure some other listeners will be interested in that as well Mm -hmm. so originally I was was going to say you know how did how did um, issues one and two go and were you really really pleased with the outcome
1: yes Uh, I must admit it was funny there were multiple points in producing it where I was thinking to myself hell it's got to be better next year I can't keep doing this (laughs) Um, but that was because there was a big learning curve, right? Mm. Um, you know, it was working with a professional printer, it was putting out two issues instead of one, uh, like our issue zero we did as our prototype in 2022. Um, and it was just, you know, it's two issues. There's twice as many authors and artists and emails just flying all over the show, schedules to keep to. Um, you know. But uh it was it was of course worth it. Uh there was also yeah, other things like I didn't even know how the proofing process worked. And, and you know, sometimes mm. it's I don't know how you do this, right? I, I don't know what the magic trick is. But it's like you have to check yourself for assumptions that you don't even realize you're operating on. So before this, I'd only ever done like indie, you know, sort of, uh, independently published stuff like on Amazon POD. Amazon POD, yeah. I mean, but you can do it any way you like in terms of how many proofs you get. But I think the average is what I did with some stuff I did before where I would just, you know, work really hard on the thing, get one proof, mark that up with pen, apply the edits... And then the next edition would be the one that sells. There wouldn't be mm-hmm. multiple rounds, um, and so with the magazine, the way you know the printer sets the stage for that. And there were like five stages of proofs, and each one was very different. And I kept going, "Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one." And I just realized that our schedule got moved forward, and ah, so you know, exciting uh, behind-the-scenes stuff like that. Um, and also, actually, um, I actually had a bit of an adventure working. Uh, I, I got to be careful because there's a false. Um, a false familiarity that can sneak in. Uh, But I guess actually your audience would be familiar with the fact that he likes to just go by Mike. Uh, in his correspondence and things. And I've been on other podcasts with just chatting with people and I'll go, blah, blah, blah. So Mike, and they go, oh, Mike, is it now? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, know, you mean Mr. Moorcock? Uh, you know, <laughs> just like, and it felt weird, you know, in the first few emails that I had back and forth with him because, you know, just as Mike and out, I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, this, this feels like when you're a small kid and you you know you call someone's parent, you know, uh, Jim. Uh, so it just, <laughs> but I got used to it, fine, whatever, you know. So anyway, Mike, um, yeah, it was it was actually kind of a fun adventure working with him. I mean, aside from the fact that it was, 110% positive meet your heroes, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, you know, he is as nice and sweet and professional and humble and wonderful as you could possibly ask for. Um, at one point actually we got chatting about cats. And I ended up sharing a picture of my Siamese and he loves Siamese too. He thinks he's got Mekong <laughs> right now though. Uh so close enough. And I mean just the fact that I can say I sent a cat picture to Michael Morcock you know, I'll carry that to my grave. Um yeah. so-, <laughs> so that was fun. But it, they, I, it was unexpectedly um, and, you know, through nobody, uh, nobody misbehaving, just the way the circumstances took us uh, as a minor dramatic arc to uh, working with him on his story. Because uh, when I first approached him, uh, you know, it was a pretty quick exchange. He was very generous and just basically said, well, my schedule is this. Can you accommodate it? I went, yeah, sure. OK, you know, and then uh, funny enough, I didn't even know it was going to be an Elroy story until after mm. the crowdfund. If you go back and look at our Kickstarter from last year, there's no mention of Elric, and you would think I would have shouted pretty loud about that. Yeah. Um, and it's just because as soon as he said yes, I I I don't know, like I was um, worried that he would just flit away like a b- startled bird or something. I didn't want to actually uh, tell him or suggest anything to write. I just, other than the word count, so I just said uh six thousand words, uh thanks, you know, double thumbs up, uh, you know, I'll I'll put your you know grocery list on you know, the magazine, like whatever, you know, it's from you. Yeah. Um so so I have his name in big lights on the crowdfund, but no mention of Elric, and I didn't know that until uh, a little ways afterward, at which point it was like I was getting him all over again. My you know, exuberance just mm. doubled up again. Um so I went, okay, Elric, great, great, great. Oh my god, I can't wait, Elric. Um but and he, he mentioned this in uh interviews and stuff, so I don't think it's out of school to mention. Uh, Mike was having um, some swelling issues, I guess, with his hands that made typing very difficult. Hmm. And so in the emails, uh, as we were chatting after the crowdfund, made sure it's all happening. Uh, he said to me, you know, um, I'm doing my best. It might take me a little longer than I'm expecting. Uh, I think it's going to be more of a vignette. And I went, well, what's a vignette mean? You know, how long is it going to be? You know, I mean, they still do me a huge favor, but I'm worried that the backers are going to feel cheated if I just put in like a thousand word, you know, hmm. flash fiction description of a room or something uh you know so so that's sort of sitting in the background as i'm working with everybody else because you're constantly rotating obviously you're not just looking at one person while you're doing this mm. um and eventually we get to june and i'm we're getting close july was when i was hoping to get it to the printers ha 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 wound up being early august um and i uh i, I check in i go you know mike how's it going you know <laughs> don't, don't want to chase you just wondering how things are going He says, oh yeah you yeah, know i'm figuring stuff out it's going well it's going well um and he said uh, i think it's gonna be about four thousand words and i went oh oh thank God. okay hurrah hurrah! okay it's going to be a proper story uh length um and at that point um you know uh, he well, anyway, sorry i was, was gonna get into too much detail so anyway great great and then we're getting closer and closer still to when everything else is done i've actually started the proofing process because you can do a little bit without it being actually fully finished so i'm really pushing everything else as far as i can uh and then i sort of turn around digitally speaking uh to mike and check in on him and he says hey oliver Uh, Here's a manuscript. I go, hurrah, great. Uh, It's not done, but I'm about to fly over to Europe, and if the plane doesn't make it, I just want to make sure you have something. (laughs) 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 Can you imagine the dark, dark timeline where I publish uh, the the incomplete final story by Michael Moorcock in the first issue of my magazine? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Um, and then also a fun detail that he mentioned that it was, it was it was joyful in that email As I mentioned we were talking about cats and he said how he likes to it's he's not sure it was uh okay with the rules but he likes to sneak his cat in under his lap under a blanket so he can keep him company there <laughs> for the flight, uh, which I thought was just you know like so much with him very charming. Um yeah. anyway, a uh, spoiler, he made it. <laughs> the plane didn't crash. Um, and then I was in this situation I didn't expect to be, where I had a, a four thousand words uh worth of the newest silver. Ink. And um I don't know about you, but I'm the, I was the kid who always had to open my Christmas presents immediately. Mm. Uh and if I found them, I would peek. But contrary to my very nature, somehow I held off. I think it was because um I felt it would be almost and this is silly, I doubt. Mike would care. But in my mind, I was thinking, oh, it'd be disrespectful if I don't have yeah. like the cleanest experience I can when I actually read the complete manuscript. If I want to do my job as editor and I want to do it as best as I can working with him so I won't look at it. But my staff, uh, right, I've uh, got to work with three other people, uh, all of this went, can we read it? <laughs> so I went, <laughs> okay, guys, I trust you. Don't share this, you know, so I send it to them and and I said, don't fucking tell me anything. But yeah, of course, I meant you get silly and you go is it good and they went it's great just needs an ending i went okay well that adds up okay can't wait to see what it's going to be uh and then a couple of days later mike emailed me and he said um oliver i feel so good about this story right now i'm gonna do a page one rewrite <laughs> And I went, what you know uh, any other author i would have lost my mind but i thought well he knows what he's doing <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Michael. Okay. It's him. You know, he knows what he's doing. Okay. All right. Oh Jesus. You know, he's trying to keep everything, you know, let's say he's trying to keep everything on schedule. Um, but you know, he did it. He did it. Uh, only a few days later, you know, maybe four or five, uh, Mike emailed me the complete story. And at this point, remember how I said I was worried it was going to be a little vignette or whatever. it came out to 8,000 words. It got longer. Uh, whereas he sorted out the ending obviously. Um, and I, I went, Oh my God, hurrah, hurrah. Okay. So I thanked him, you know, profusely in email, printed it out. Um, Took it to a pub uh, near where I live, uh, grabbed a pint on a Sunday afternoon, sat down with it and a pen and just uh, had a first read. And it felt
0: surreal to get to do it, even though I'd been what having it coming my way for a fucking great afternoon in the pub that really is you know i mean i think back i I used to be a smoker right and i think back to how i used to really enjoy just going and sitting in a pub and staring into space and the ritual of rolling a cigarette with a pint something i would never do in a million years anymore because i don't smoke number one and because you can't smoke in pubs but that used to be part of my ritual you know if i I was late for if a train was late or i could just go and sit in a pub on my own staring space think roll a cigarette and drink a pint can't do that anymore but i would take that as a fairly decent backup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: No, I, uh, I I must admit, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't smoke, but I'm with you. I'm just you know, having a meditative experience, you know, turn your phone off mm. or whatever and just sit there on the patio or whatever with uh, a pint and just, yeah. And uh, and so there I was up at this place on, uh, for those of who don't know Toronto, up, up on Bloor Street and just sort of enjoying, you know, seeing the traffic go by and occasionally looking down and going, Jesus, it's still there. <laughs> mm. You know, it hasn't vanished in a puff of smoke or something. You know, here I am with this, this new story. Um, and I had faith in my uh, stuff and their take on what they had read so far. And again, obviously faith in Mike, but you just can't get away from it as an editor. You have the anxiety that the thing that you most touted as the exciting bit, you know, you want it to, you want it to live up to, you know, the hype that you've given out. Um, well, obviously you know, it did. It really did. But it's this thing of, um, you know, if you're listening and you haven't read The Folk of the Forest, obviously I'm biased as hell. It's my magazine. But trust me, it's, I'm, what I'm about to say next comes from a place of love from uh, from Michael's work, not uh self-love or whatever from my magazine um he really 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 delivered and it felt like you know because you often get people um saying oh well i prefer sort of the early moorcock uh, i mean i prefer the early more uh adventurous uh whatever driven things that he wrote in uh, a week or whatever you know and and some people maybe prefer the later Elric that's a bit more uh, ethereal and thought- thoughtful and so on um i found this had elements of both mm-hmm. and i found it was impossible to read without. Um, how do to put this. He's written a story that with very minor edit notes that we did back and forth after I read the manuscript um could be made. it was, was it was it's friendly if you've never read Elric before it's a good it's it's not a bad introduction I got to say. Hmm. Uh, it functions on that level but it also feels really rich and rewarding uh for someone who who really knows uh, Elric uh, specifically in his work in general um and it had this uh of course I was thinking about the ending a bit as I went in uh, because I knew that i would come in after um and uh I don't want to spoil things, but I'll just say it, it had an incredibly touching element that I was not prepared for. Mm-hmm. It did kind of hit me in the chest a bit when I finished, um, which was wonderful. You know, I mean if it had just been a, a good, you know, blood and thunder adventure or whatever, I mean I wouldn't have complained, but mm. uh, yeah, it was phenomenal um how that worked out. And so, you know, well, something I can give you the link for if you like. Um the, to, to sort of is an epilogue to this whole story of me being delighted with that and then working with the editing was, was a, a quick and easy situation uh like i say it was, there wasn't much to, to do or what, what am i going to tell him you know here's how you write elric mate. Uh, mm. but uh just just a few minor little things i i gave to him that um understandably he's been writing elric so long that there were certain elements he didn't explain in a, uh, the level of detail that a new reader might require so that was all. Just, I just added a little bit of detail on that side. Otherwise, pff, nothing to do with it. right? It was a, such a beautiful story already. Um, but something uh, your listeners may appreciate is uh, months later, we started doing something. By we, I mean the magazine. Uh, we have our own little Discord server. We were chatting with the uh, readers and stuff. And mm. I decided to do once a month because um, I do... I mean, half of our slogan, right? It's made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary pushing approach to storytelling. Um, you know, so I do love the classics, and and uh, but I do think that they get uh, heavier than maybe we should have in terms of balance, uh, focus in sword and sorcery. You know, I I think contemporary stories need to get the same level of, if not necessarily uh, love, because they've got to earn it, obviously, um, but scrutiny and and du- and the depth of discussion. So I started doing a monthly series uh, on our Discord that we then share on YouTube and stuff where myself and a panel of a few other individuals who sort of float around that circle, take a contemporary story and discuss it. And what, why mm. do I mention this in regards to Elric? Well, of course, because we had a unique opportunity here um, in um, either December or January, whatever. It's on our YouTube channel. I'll give you the link. Uh, I, you know, Author Christopher Rao, who hangs out with us, said, hey, you know, we could do this thing where we could read the original version of The Dreaming City, right, mm. uh, from 61, and then we could read Folk of the Forest." And then we were looking at, you know, the very first and the very latest yeah. uh, Elric story and talk about how, what it's like looking at the uh, evolution of his prose and style and all that stuff. And also just thinking about how we relate to each story and not necessarily, I mean, of course, one or two people kind of said, well, I think I like this one better or whatever. Yeah. But it, was, it wasn't it was so much for that. It was just about this thing of really getting to appreciate um, all this time that he's been working on, on on Elric and it wound up being I I think uh, probably my favourite of those discussions we've done so far so you know after I say I'll just to toss you the link I think people who really love Mike and his work would appreciate that uh, chat we had uh, mm. and it was so fun to be able to do that and that was kind of the period to the end of the long rambling sentence I've been giving you of the journey of working uh, with Mike um, because uh, I don't know I think, it, I think what it was was by the time we did that recording I had had enough time uh, probably four months or five months at that point from when I'd been editing the thing to actually kind of step back and then come return to it and holding a hardcover of my issue number one, which was very pleasing into itself, uh, just for the first time really since I sat at the pub, um, would sit with a hard copy and read it more as just a guy reading an Elric story instead of a person mm. trying to produce a magazine and thinking about it from all those angles. And uh, if I, bloody hell, it worked again. <laughs> mm. It was It was still very impactful and enjoyable even though I knew what was coming. Um, mm. And it was a, a joy to discuss, as I say, on the panel. So I'll, I'll
0: have to toss you the link for that, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, do so. Uh, one like of the, one of the things that Loz and I tend to talk about, the Elric books, and our very first episode was about the Dreaming City. Mm-hmm. And then a while later, because in narrative chrono- chronology terms, um, we did Elric of Melniboné, of course, which was written over 10 years after the Dreaming City. And then we did The Fortress of the Pearl, which is written probably eight or nine years after Elric of Melniboné, It was like 89, I think it came out, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think if you read... I mean, people have got the wonderful saga volumes now, the saga press editions, which are absolutely wonderful. Although, you still get that massive frustration that you get the saga volumes, then the release... Citadel Forgotten Myths, which awkwardly <laughs> slot in between issue um, volumes two and three. Then you get other stories. Then you discover there are minor stories that have appeared in various places have never been reprinted. So it will never be complete. And as a collector, that's both frustrating and wonderful, you know, because you always <laughs> yeah. Like it's to nice to, to think know it's never done, but that, also yeah. <laughs> it's always nice to think there's something out there that you've not actually discovered, and there's some rare gem out there. But, yeah, you having that discussion is really interesting because one of the things that Loz and I always talk about is the wild shift in writing style, in tone. Um, I mean, to go from Elric of Melniboné to Fortress of the Pearl alone mm. is a pretty big swing uh, in terms of, of tone and writing style. I mean, in some ways, that's more rewarding. I remember talking to a guy very early on when I started this podcast who I think there was a conversation going on on Twitter and someone said what do I start with with Elric? And someone said, don't Mm. start with Fortress of the Pearl. And he was in Australia and he said, oh, actually Fortress of the Pearl was my introduction to Elric and I thought it was absolutely fantastic and then I became a rabid consumer. And just getting the more vital 60s stuff just became like you know a massive rush of of sensation after reading this really thoughtful book, The Fortress of the Pearl. So I think it worked both ways, obviously. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see that discussion. Yeah, send the link and I will share it with everybody.
1: Yeah, no, I will, and, and that of course, you know, li- you know, chronological or linear, you know, whatever, or publication order, I should say. absolutely was a discussion, especially because mm. uh, *Folk of the Forest*. Again, for, uh, for those who haven't read it, um, it, we're joining Elric in his adolescence. So, if you want to talk about linear publication, uh, sorry, uh, linear time, then mm. technically, it's the first story you should read. <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't know. I th- like I said, I think we made it work pretty well for that. I really wanted it to be a nice introduction, because as hard as it is to imagine, of course, we've got readers who've never heard of Mike or Elric. And they go, Oh, I like that Witcher thing. It's like, yeah, okay, but like, go back uh, to. <laughs> <boo>. yeah, <no. laughs> I mean, that's fine. No shade. You know, we all have to discover uh, the influences of the things that, you know, we see maybe more of in contemporary stuff. I, I'm no uh, exception. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I, would it actually work as a good first story? Well, that's a hold up debate that we literally had. So people can listen to that and, and figure it out for themselves. And yeah, I mean, you never know where you're going to start. I mean, I'm a William Gibson super fan and i just tripped over uh it was idoru and it's the middle of a trilogy that book uh and i read it and i loved it and he wrote it in a way that it worked as a standalone but what did i know right you know and then next you know i've got all of his stuff and here we are so yeah you never know where you're going to begin and, and what era of that person you're going to start with and fall in love with um but uh yeah i just think it's, it's, it's so wonderful that um you have that that so, so so that was one angle we talked about right was the the chronological versus uh story linear whatever uh still waking up everyone sorry uh she's such a good puppy but goddamn, um uh the uh publication versus chronological uh thing but uh, the other thing was I, I i put to the group i said you know um obviously we talked a lot about what would this be like as someone's first story but none of us here are, are uh, elric virgins and so as a result um how do you how do you uh look at your receiving this story in light of it being refracted through your personal history with him, Hmm. you know, because I mean, I, for example, can't read it remotely uh, objectively anymore because I got to work with it uh, through, through stages of publication. And I got to actually know the author, which was lovely. I mean, not that we're best friends and I'm going to be as, you know, whatever he's going to be at my wedding, but yeah, it's nonetheless, it was, it's unusual. I don't have that with most of the big names I have on my shelf. Um, So, You know, I got to talk to Kim Stanley Robinson once. Whatever, right? Anyway, uh, so 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 there's, you know, I'm sitting there with a unique standpoint, and then I, you know, the other people on the panel had all found and fallen in love with Mike's work at different points in their life, whether it was when they were eleven, they you know fell in love at that stage, and we all know what that's like, or found him when you know in their thirties, and it was very more you know removed and 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 whatever. But um, but what was kind of fun for me actually is uh, contrary to the the amount that I'm talking or the fact that I'm only a child and love the sound of my own voice or whatever. I mine was not my favorite point of view on that discussion. It was that of Kevin Beckett, our social media coordinator, who was one of my staff who read that earlier version And mm. uh, that was only four thousand words and didn't have the ending. And basically, he said to me, uh, I, "You'll get in more detail in the recording, but um, you know," he said to me and the rest of the panel uh, listening, um, "It was that first four thousand words was a rollicking good Elric adventure, mm. but plainly what." michael uh, uh, was alluding to when he sent me that email going i'm going to do a page one rewrite i've got it uh was that he had found that heart that i told you that kind of slams you like a truck at the end he figured out mm-hmm. how to get to that and then worked back through what he'd already written um to thread it in uh you know uh, i mean i suppose you could say foreshadow but i don't know if that's the right word for it exactly foreshadow sounds blunter than what he did uh, mm-hmm. what he did was much more smooth but uh but yes yeah, yes, yeah. so i mean so it was very interesting to hear about kevin's reading experience as well you know and, and then all of this you know like i say talking about our, our various ways of finding and falling in love with, with this work and how that influences the way you read it I, I just i don't know this is stuff i live for you know surprise mm-hmm. surprise i have an english degree and i, I also uh I, I volunteer uh have had for the last seven years at the mural collection i probably mentioned this last time it's a mm-hmm. the western hemisphere's largest publicly available archive of science fiction and fantasy uh mm-hmm. they've got quite a few shelves of of Mike's uh, stuff but just in general they have over 80,000 pieces uh, and it's an incredible research tool and so I love to spend time there it's actually a big part of how I got caught up in uh, Sword and Sorcery quickly uh, because I didn't actually read any fantasy for a long time Uh, I I read everything as a kid until I was about 11 or 12 and don't ask me why I couldn't tell you but I got it in my head at some point you have to choose a team, science fiction or fantasy. Which is it? And then you've got to throw out the other one and not care about it. I, I don't know why. And for a reason, I was like, science fiction, it's more sophisticated. Never mind a million stupid things you can think of as soon as I say that yeah. sentence. Um, <laughs> and so um, I actually dropped fantasy for a good long while. And even after I fell out of the dumb idea that it got me there, I just wasn't in the habit of checking out a lot of fantasy. Um and so it wasn't really until about uh, six years ago, not long into my volunteering uh, to support the collection, I just was there and I remembered reading Savage Sword of Conan. And I went, Jesus, you know, did I ever actually read the prose? <laughs> you know, did I just read the comic, which is wonderful, but still. Uh, so I, I picked those, uh, some Lancer Conans up there and started reading them. And then I was off to the races and that included just devouring uh, Michael Moorcock's work. I, I feel ashamed to say this, having published it, the latest Elric story, but I didn't touch them until I was in my mid-30s um and yet once soon as i found him <laughs> uh you know just, just as much as i can get my hands on and i'm still working through because there is there's a bit as you know um but uh you know i'm getting there I, I, I i'm looking forward to quorum next i i keep hearing great things uh and i really want to check out those stories and i have of course aside from the obvious elric stuff uh touched upon uh some of the eternal champion you know i've read a bit of jerry cornelius yeah I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through so that's kind of neat. i'm mean, Johnny Johnny come lately Uh, And that's influenced my uh, take on it as well, right? Um, Anyway, God, I feel like I could just talk forever about it. But uh, what can I say? The the, the punchline is uh, to to your original question, was just like, what was it like doing one and two? Well, obviously, I'm focusing on Mike. This is the podcast I'm on. That aspect was a dream come true. No complaints, and it, it was a whole journey unto itself. Uh, it concluded with that recording, essentially, uh, and, and now you know. Sure, I, I said to him, "Hey, do you want to come back?" And he's like, "Well, I'm writing my new novel. I'm kind of busy, but I can give you a reprint." Okay, sure. Uh, so <laughs> no, I'm not going to complain. Uh, mm-hmm. So as I say, we'll have a reprint of one of his short stories that was not uh, an elric that was not collected in Saga. um Hasn't been in print for a little while, actually, um and it will be having uh, two new pieces of art uh, by sapro So I'm very excited about that. Otherwise, in general. Yeah, like I say, it was it was a lot of work and a lot of learning, uh, but the final product is exactly what I wanted, and mm. how satisfying is that? Uh, and everything we learned from it, we're carrying forward into these new issues. Uh, I'm already uh, very happy with what we've done with the cover designs. We just learned some stuff, you know, no shade on the actual artists of last year's covers, let's be clear. I'm talking about the layout and design, uh, putting it all together, that myself and Nathaniel Webb, uh, who's kind of my... my you know, moon glum on this whole journey. Uh, (laughs) He's it's very much my second uh, that we work together on uh, all things all the time. Um, We we learn some stuff and I think we've come up with maybe a a better, cleaner design, especially because now we've got to think about stores. Uh, A big triumph we've had Hmm. uh, is that we actually have just gotten a a US uh, uh, retail distribution deal so we can start putting things into the shops, and if you live in the states and know a comic or book or gaming store that might want to carry a sword and sorcery magazine, let me know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so I really think we're building on it and, and making it bigger, better, more beautiful, and, and just as affordable as last year without having you know driven up the cost. God, I'm mm. babbling a little bit. Uh, hit me up with a question. Now, what would you like to? What else would you like to know? Where where did you come across sapra um sapro uh you know i wish i had a more intriguing narrative there but i found uh found her a similar way to how i have found most of our artists Uh, you know if you if you're listening and you're thinking i'd like to do a publication well let me tell you it is a golden age for finding really interesting artists because i just look a lot at uh instagram uh tumblr uh twitter before it kind of became what it became over the last year uh you know um and even yeah, a blue sky seems to be a pretty decent substitute for twitter and so yeah just social media i'll just i'll just follow people i'll see what other artists are retweeting Uh, a lot of the artists i found just because uh, you know the other you know they were uh, they were shared by other artists still so yeah sapro somewhere somewhere along that line and that sort of churn of just seeing what's going on online i found her art and i went to you know her tumblr and checked it out some more and, and i just thought you know this is some good stuff uh and i I paired her with um, Michael's story because she is very much her own thing. Don't get me wrong. But she made me think a little bit of um, arguably my favorite uh, renditions of Elric, which were by... Oh, God, he does really sort of elfin, ethereal Elrics from the 80s. Yeah, uh, I know and what all, you mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just thought, ooh. You know, and I re- reached out, brought her on. Uh, and uh, yeah, she's wonderful to work with, very professional sapro. I strongly recommend her. Um, and she also actually designed uh, something fun we did for the crowdfund last year, which was an exclusive uh, bookmark. And she did art for that that I have very intentionally never shared uh, elsewhere. So that was fun.
0: Yoshitako Amana. Thank you. Christ. We got there in the end. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <sighs> we got there. We got there. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yes, yes. Uh, so, so that was. Uh, I, again, I wish I had a more exciting tale for her. No, no. Some people, you you have a little story like that for file, uh, with the whole uh, Black God's Kiss connection. Um, but a lot of it's just finding people online, reaching out, seeing if they'll, you know, you can find something agreeable, and then and then bringing them on board. Well, um, this is the wonderful you know.
0: thing about the democratization of art, isn't it? Really, that mm. the internet has allowed. Okay, yeah, okay. It's, it's universes wide, and it's really, really hard to pin things down. And I think there's a problem for artists where they can get their stuff out there and find, but it's it's kind of lost in a sea of stuff. Mm. But the the wonderful thing about it is, is it's there, and if you look for it, you can find it. I have a similar thing with music at the moment with with Bandcamp, mm. you yeah. know, and you, just using Bandcamp to find new music that you would never find in a million years through any other source. Through any other way of promoting music, you just go on there, you put in a search term, you roll a dice, bit of luck, and you just come across some absolutely incredible stuff. It's it's wonderful, and I've got to say that that Sapper artwork is fantastic. It's it's one of my favourite features. You know, apart from the stars themselves, all of the art is really good. But I really love her take on Elric. I think it's fantastic, and I'm looking forward to to more art from her. Yeah, Yeah, no, it was lovely. And
1: actually, uh, her her early sketch was interesting because, um, you know, if you've seen it, uh, the first piece of art is just like a two-column-wide, page-length portrait of Elric. Hmm. And I did suggest to her, I said, you know, the second illustration absolutely needs to be a scene from the story. But, you know, I said to her, I want you, uh, Sapro, to get as much out of this as you can. And I think for your portfolio going forward, it would be good to have a kind of a platonic Elric you know, portrait. So let's not worry about the first illustration showing a scene, just make it your best Elric and give it a nice frame and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it came out really wonderfully. But it was funny, her earlier version, I realized I'd messed up as editor, I didn't tell her it was going to be a younger Elric uh and so the early one was a much more arch and kind of you know his cheeks were a little more drawn you know looking a little more evil and then it was fun to see the transformation when when i go mm. so, oh actually hang on he's a teenager in this one and he's got you know he has, the world hasn't beaten him down that much yet uh so <laughs> to make him look a little more serene maybe uh so yeah yeah i yeah that, that was pretty interesting to see that evolve Um, And then the sort of grand uh, battle scene uh, that we did as a full pager for the second illustration. Um, Mm. I mean, she just read the story and came back to me and said, how about this? I went, yep, sounds great. And boom, nailed it. I don't even remember having one edit for that uh, illustration. She did a fantastic job. Mm. Um, Yeah. 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 And then, yeah, it's a a golden age for finding artists. Uh, One thing I would recommend for people uh, that you can do. I don't, Again, Twitter is mm, imploding, but uh, if you're still on there, um, occasionally artists uh, do hashtag Portfolio Day, and you just—I mm. mean, I'm, I, I've, I've never really used hashtags uh, much uh, from either end, except for finding artists. You'll see hashtag Portfolio Day, or maybe if you're looking for certain styles. You might see, you know, hashtag South Asian artists or something, you know, and you get a lot more people from that you know uh, corner. Yeah, it's it's really really great, which is why we, I, I think you and I probably agree on this. We don't need to waste a lot of time talking about it, but. It is part of what makes the uh, quote-unquote artificially intelligent art thing even stupider and shittier because mm. it, it's never been easier to find artists. If you're using that stuff, you just don't want to pay people and I've got mm. no time for that. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. And also uh, something we do, I, like I said, I really want every contributor I work with, uh, author or artist, to get as much out of the experience as possible. So we're very careful to make sure that we credit the artists on the title page of each story. It's not just the author. Uh, and we also, in our table of contents, underneath each artist's name, put uh if they have one, which pretty much all of them do, uh their Instagram handle. So it's mm. very easy if someone ends up liking them and wants to commission something, they can find them. Uh that's uh, just uh, I don't know if it's quite an ethical thing. That feels heavy handed to say ethical, but it just feels right. It feels like the good thing to do, I think, mm. when you're working with artists is another mm. way to support them beyond uh the wage or whatever.
0: Um yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh so yeah. Um well let's talk about um what's coming up then because you've mentioned obviously the GRL of Giorgio story and when I read the mention of it in the Kickstarter page, or in one of your posts, I can't quite remember. I thought, right, I'm going to get on the shelf and I'm going to dig out my with um, sci- my fantasy master. And see, I said fi but masterworks. My fantasy masterworks, C.L. Moore collection, which is Black Gods and Scarlet Dreams, which is half Garel of jewelry half um, Northwest Smith. I that yeah, name? her sort of head solo esque yeah. character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I reread the first story, Garel meets magic, and you know what? It ticks all the boxes. It's it's got beautiful prose. It's got the powerful, driven heroine, trippy psychedelic worlds, pesky wizards, yep. uh, Mortal Kombat. A few dashes of the crimson. Written in 1935, right in the sweet spot, the crucible of the sword and sorcery explosion. So, h- how did you come? I mean, you've, you've actually you've explained how you come came to pull Jurel into the orbit of New Edge. But for people who don't perhaps know, because one one of the things we have, which is quite common, and actually it's. For this podcast, we actually, because we cover other authors as well, we have had people who have pulled into the podcast as listeners who have enjoyed listening to something and then say, well, we've never actually read any Michael Mocock, but now we'll listen to your Mocock episodes. We're going to go and find some, because you still have that thing where in 2024, it's still the case that even in the UK and is Britain's greatest living fantasist is not a household name, like someone like George R, R. R. Martin is or anything like that. We did a Robert Sheckley book a couple of weeks ago, and my guest Derek, who lives in New York, Sheckley was a fellow New Yorker, Derek loves sci-fi, never heard of Robert Sheckley, and we've got a similar thing, I think, with with C.L. Moore. Who was C.L. Moore? Of course, Catherine Moore, wasn't it? But just tell us a little bit about Catherine Moore and why she's so important to the genre.
1: Right. Well, okay. So yes, uh, CL Moore, who, uh, you know, is Catherine the steel Moore. She went by uh CL not because she was a woman writing at the time. who was concerned about that putting off readers, but because she worked at a bank and she didn't want her boss finding out what she was doing in her spare time. <laughs> the kind of thing of, you know, oh, uh, you want to become an author Well, I'll fire you, you can go focus on it. Uh, you know, especially cause it was in the bloody depression. Right. So she needed yeah. that day job. Um, so that's what's going on in terms of CL as opposed to calling her Catherine Moore. Um, and what she was was a, she is she is an underdiscussed I would say member of the weird tale circle. It she may not have been I quite as prolific as say Lovecraft or Howard, but it does frustrate me when you see publication after publication after publication that talks pretty much just about the boys of of uh, Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, and Howard, all of whom are worthy really discussing at length, but more tends to not get in the mix or she gets mentioned sort of uh, peripherally because uh, she did correspond uh, certainly with Lovecraft and Howard. I can't remember if she talked to Smith. And you'll find her in their letters, and you'll find her in their letters in really uh, noteworthy ways. You know, Howard, for example, uh, says, uh, I don't have the date of the letter on my ha- you know, hand here, but um, before he finished writing Conan, before he wrote Valeria, before he wrote Belie, um you know and obviously yonks before red Sonia came onto the scene uh, later um he uh said you know to more i'm really impressed by the way you write your characters i think i'm gonna try and step up my game with how i write the women in my stories and mm. what you're doing is inspiring me in that direction so uh you know in particular dark agnes or a sword woman she sometimes published uh straight influence from c l moore's work uh in general but particularly of course with jerelle Jaurie. Uh, mm-hmm. so right there i mean she's not just influencing people who came later she's influencing her contemporaries in the weird mm-hmm. tales circle as you say 35 there right in mean, 35 to 39 she was rain drill i want to say um she did six stories so if you want to get caught up it's not hard uh five of them are really good the sixth one is debatable because curiously that one she co-wrote with the man who would go on to become her husband uh henry kuttner um, and that's a fun, sort of a goofy crossover with Jarell and Northwest Smith. And, like, that's fine. I don't mind, if it, you know, mixing genres and stuff. But you read the voices, the characters in Jarrell just doesn't quite feel right. So you're kind of wondering how much influence Henry Kuttner had on that one. But mm. whatever. I'm focusing on the wrong thing. The five main stories uh, Black God's Kiss, it's a sequel, Black God's Shadow, Jarrell meets Magic, as you mentioned, The Dark Land, which frequently jockeys for top position in my likings. And uh, Hellsguard, uh, which is uh, our author of the new one, Molly Tanzer's favorite story story, they are gorgeous. They're absolutely worth reading, every single one of them. And as I say, five stories, not, t- not too hard. There's lots of different collections. It's, um, they were sort of all brought together back again in 1969 and have been in, print in one form or another ever since. Mm. Uh, the covers of stock photo, or whatever, but if you just want the words, galance uh, has, a, has a paperback that's really easy to find. Um, and uh, Ace uh, put out a lovely one in 1982 with my personal favorite cover, uh, you know. But anyway, whatever. There's a whole bunch of editions, including your Fantasy Masterworks. Um,
0: mm. So it's easy to find. Her... I do have the Ace edition, but I couldn't find it. But oh, that yeah. is a beautiful cover. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, for those listening, you know, wondering what, why I like it so much, I'll just say in, in a nutshell, it has um, a portrayal of uh, one of the most beautiful things from the very first story, Black God's Kiss, where she, in the story. Uh, it opens this is the premise i'm not spoiling anything it, it, her, her castle has been sacked and there's this uh other war you know she's a 13th or 14th century french warlord which right away that's pretty cool um but her castle's been sacked she's been captured you know she's at her low ebb what are we going to do you know and there's this other bugger uh, Guillaume, who you know forces a kiss upon her and then chucks her in the dungeon and the rest of the story is about her seeking revenge and uh i'll just say she goes to another terrible weird place i sometimes jokingly refers to her as Alice in Wonderland with a big fucking sword Hmm. because uh, of all her classic stories she pretty much always starts in uh, 13th or 14th century France and within not too many pages winds up in another realm
0: she always goes Uh, through a portal of some kind does she yeah
1: Exactly, exactly. When Jor-El meets magic, right? She's conquering a mm. castle and looking for this wizard that you don't even know the whole story there. But she hates him and she wants to find him and kill him. And and, and her men go, "Sorry, we can't find him." You know, we've checked every room, kind of thing. What are you doing? You know. And then we, the story sort of starts proper as she finds a kind of a, a magic a windowsill and steps through into some mm. other realm. So then, off we, you know, it happens again, right? um so that was definitely kind of the motif with her uh, uh is, is her going to other weird realms and that cover on ace shows an element of the weird realm she winds up in in black god's kiss where she's going through this kind of inky void and not sure what's happening where she's heading and then uh, uh a stampede of blind white horses charges past and around her and the cover has her in uh it's not what she's wearing in the story who cares cool sort of uh feathered battle armor uh with her red hair just flaming in the wind and you know what's funny um I think it has been done. I think there's an addition. I've told it's more orange uh, if we want to get pernickety, but uh, there's a detail of Sherelle's appearance always stands out to me in the stories, which is her, quote, leonine yellow eyes piercing, Mm. you know, whoever would dare meet their gaze. Uh, I was very insistent for the cover art on our issue three there uh, to have that and to have her staring you down, and you don't see that in most of the other cover art. But uh, so I don't, I don't know if she, her eyes are yellow in that one anyway. Too much detail, Oliver. What's the significance of Jarrell? Well, aside from as I mentioned, uh, Moore being essentially a, a, an undersung member of the Weird Tales circle, uh, she did lots of other stories too. Than Jarell, of course, including as we mentioned, Northwest Smith. Uh, there's a story of hers called Chambleau, which I really recommend. Um, but just, you know, you could you look up on Wikipedia. You don't even need to read the, the whole bibliography for you. But Seal Moore is absolutely influential and entertaining and stands out in her own way it's not like reading uh, just any old you know weird tales person uh, she had a really evocative style in particular i found for creating a sense of atmosphere and uh, emotional depth you know sherelle uh, is a really fun character in the sense that she's not um, a perfect hero by any uh, hero by any stretch you know it just casually mentions at one point that she has a dungeon that people get tortured in same as all the other warlords <laughs> you know <laughs> um and uh, she certainly wasn't um uh, like a male gay sex pot or whatever, but it does mention at one point that she says, well, I'm no stranger to light-loving, like whatever, you know, she'll sort she'll of take a fellow if she feels like it, uh, in between all the bloodshed. Uh, and then, of course, as I mentioned, she's a stone-cold killer with a ferocious temper. Mm-hmm. And how it got me there, I about her emotions. I mean, she has other things going on. She's not one note. But it is interesting to have um, a woman protagonist written in that era by a woman who just has an absolutely unapologetic massive temper that comes into a lot of her adventures in different yeah. scenes and sometimes when she's in maybe more of a kind of a psychic conflict as she is sort of in the story of the Darklands, um that anger is what carries her through but it also frequently gets her into trouble because it means that she doesn't think hard enough about what she's doing sometimes you mm-hmm. know just yesterday i was talking on a live stream with molly tanzer about how when her and i chatted and i was trying to get the, the measure of her we were meeting for the first time and thinking, do I want to work with this author? Obviously, I said yes in the end, and part of what convinced me was how Molly I felt really got Jarell. Uh, what she jokingly calls Jarell stuff, and one of the things that she mentioned was the fact that Jarell is not... A thinker you know she'll she'll she's not stupid but it's just the fact that she's not going to sit in a room and ponder and go well should i do this oh but, sh- but what made me think i should do that and get recursively introspective she's going to think about it get sort of annoyed and then go off and see what she can make happen uh so classic sns hero in that regard a person of action no doubt um and even though she's a, a warlord she's kind of an outsider there's nothing uh, no one else quite like her and this frequently causes her grief um and the other thing that actually uh, Molly said that made me laugh and go, "Yeah, I think this 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 author gets it," uh, was that Sherelle has terrible taste in men. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, and so that was an element that got brought forward actually into into our new story, which, much to my delight, um, yeah. So I, you know, why why it's this it's this thing where I say, you know, um, Moore was the first woman sword and sorcery author. Sherelle the first woman sword and sorcery protagonist, uh, arguably. Uh, but if that was all there was to recommend them, I wouldn't have sought out to revive the character because that's just interesting historical footnotes. What mm. made me want to revive the character was these the stories were compelling for all these reasons I've given thus far. And I wanted, if you'll pardon the unintentional pun more. Um, and I, the joy of being a publisher is sometimes you get to make that happen. Uh, so yeah, much to my delight, all these years later, a bit of email and paperwork and luck, and, uh, finding a, a great author. We now have this 12,000-word story that's going to have four illustrations now because uh, it's a double length, right? We were going to give it two, mm-hmm. but we got double art, four illustrations. I can't wait. And I can't, I, I cannot guarantee it because the crowdfund is still happening. We were just a little over the first week now, so I don't know where we're going to be at by the end. It's not an official stretch goal or anything, and it's expensive on my end, so we'll see. But if the crowdfund really blows the doors off, I'm hoping to print that issue not in black and white but in black and white and red ink so Ooh, that rills nice. hair can really stand out yeah uh, you know uh, i i i don't run into that a lot but when i have found it in old comics or whatever it, oh i love it it's gorgeous so i'm really hoping we can have trills you know powerful red hair as it were uh, flaming across the page um so so yeah i think i i could go on you know i think i made that clear uh but i hope that answers your question why i think uh, Moore is is an important compelling author uh for, for her her prose and style and for learning you know uh, more about someone who obviously influenced so much that came later uh and and just also spreading the good word tell, you know if you're reading you like it tell someone else because more people uh, need to be aware of her uh, she's under discussed in, in the realm of sns and, and in the, with the weird tale circles in my opinion
0: Mm. Oh, it's terrifically exciting for me because, you know, one of the reasons I love that Ace Pocket Books... No, sorry, it's not an Airs Pocket Books edition. It's a, the Ace edition that you referred to is I think what marks her out as a character is that cover, and it, it matches the contents of the stories. She's a powerful, forceful figure. I mean, I, th- I think it's really amusing, actually, in Gerald Meeks Magic that when she's in this sort of weird, soporific jungle of giant flowers she she doesn't pause for anything she just she's got to climb that mountain get back to that tower and kill that fucking wizard and yeah. it's brilliant but the cover of that book it's not the classic lascivious artwork for a female fancy hero there's no cleavage on show there's you know i mean i love me some frank Rosetta buttocks but there's you know there's no that stuff it's just a beautiful beautiful image and, yeah, I think it really matches the contents of the book so perfectly. It's one of it's one of the... I mean, it goes back to a, an era when a lot of book covers... And you know what? I love me some Bob Haberfield Mocock covers, but a lot of covers don't really give you a particularly good idea of what's going to happen in the book that you're going to read. That is one of the most perfectly matched images to the contents of a book I think mm-hmm. I've got on any of my shelves. But, you know, going back to the fact that there's going to be a new authorised your Elf Joy story for the first time in eighty five years is tremendously exciting and what a great selling point for for issues three and four. It's absolutely terrific. So yeah, yeah, and you know here, what I feel uh,
1: remiss speaking of uh, artists. I need to find yes, uh, Sasha Dodovic is the artist uh, who is rendering ourrel on the cover mm. uh, and coming back to you know what we we're saying here, you know i I talked with him and said, you know what, we're bringing her back the cover art should be her just her on a stark white background uh, the the dominant red that he's given her outfit that you guys can see if you go back and get and look up new edge um i thought really worked well uh, and he, he you know he, bless him he immediately grabbed he wasn't familiar with jorill when i approached him but he'd done a gorgeous elric uh, which i can give you a link for if you like uh, mm. his instagram and all that a gorgeous conan and so i thought i bet you can do a really good jorill mm. uh, and so he had not read her but he immediately grabbed uh, that gollants paperback i mentioned. Uh, started reading and you know he took from the text you know if you look at the cover you'll see that she has the uh sort of ancient Roman greaves which never get explained and that's fine by me uh you know uh that's are mention in black God's kiss that she wears on her shins for example mm. so he really paid attention to the way she's describing the text and, and brought that forward in his own style. Uh, for our cover, and I I've, yeah, I was so satisfied when I got back, even just the initial sketches, uh, because uh, Jril basically became our mascot. <laughs> she was, I've used her in all the promotional stuff, you know, uh, moving forward um, <laughs> uh, for the crowdfund. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's been sort of our spearhead. But, I mean, you know, we also, like I say, we've got uh, Jarrell and Elric this year, you know. That's pretty cool to be able to say. Uh, someone said to me, you know, what are you going to do next year? I went, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I dig you up know, Robert the- Howard's bones, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the bar is pretty high now, isn't it? If you keep on raising I've got some that ideas. Are- but yeah uh, yeah. yeah. and I actually you know what just
1: for fun I looked into the right situation with Conan and uh, it's pretty sewn up (laughs) surprise surprise Uh, Uh, I would need a gigantic whack of cash and luck uh, and some phone numbers I don't have Uh, so uh, I don't know about Conan ever being in the magazine but uh, certainly there, I I have my eye on some other classic characters I'd love to bring in uh, to our pages uh, Um, and uh, yeah and also uh, we have um, Harry Turtledove actually uh, for fans of uh, his, his work Uh, doing a sword and sorcery story as you can imagine with him it is rooted in actual uh history um but there are fantastic elements that make it appropriate for the magazine um and so that's fun we've got him and then just yeah a whole bunch of other authors uh that i'm very very happy to have um uh, you know i i I don't want to rattle off all the names because there's so many uh but uh, i will mention if you read us last year you might enjoy seeing the return of uh darryl keogh we'll have Orahan the snow leopard will be returning for example Or, uh, you know, um, June Orchid Parker, who, this was part of the fun of actually last year, um, you know, I'll just say, on the one end of the experience spectrum, we had Michael Moorcock, and then all the way through, you know, various mid-listers and so on, all the way down to... Uh June Orchid Parker I mentioned because it was her very first published story ever, <laughs> so and it was just really so it was nice to to have that you know spectrum as i say uh, and it's always nice to get an author started that was pleasing and that was pure chance actually. June was a member of our discord, and not that she um threw it at me. I mean please don't join the discord just to try and submit to me uh but uh, uh she just uh chucked up a story uh in our channel that we have for uh, beta readers, and I normally would have had no time that was this was the last June I was in the middle of everything. But I got hit with a really bad cold, and I just was crashed in bed, just staring at the ceiling, couldn't make any big decisions for the the running of the magazine. I thought, well, I'll read a story, read it, loved it, you know, reached out, found it a, a bit of wiggle room in the budget, and so that's why there's an eighth story in issue two. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so June will be back. Um, so, yeah, uh, 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 Oh, God. I mean, what else is there that's fun? Well, like I guess I will tell a little bit about some of the crowdfund stuff that's kind of fun. So it uh, relates to this, because last year we did the traditional thing, right, with a lot of Kickstarters, uh, where you have a thank you page. Uh, just listing a bunch of names of people and nothing wrong with that. I'm glad we did it. But this year going in, like I say, my attitude to everything was how can we do this a little different? How can we build on it? So I thought, what can be our sort of thank you page, as it were, this time? And I think nine-year-old Oliver really has been taking the wheel more than I expected with this one, because, you know, like I said, we as our sort of thank you for getting us funded so quickly, rub on tattoos, right? So in a similar <laughs> vein, uh, I thought about the thank you page and what could be more interesting or different, at least there. And I remembered my great love as a kid of sticker books, you know, where you'd get mm. the thing and there would be like, you know, various numbers, empty frames, and you'd buy the packs of stickers at random and try and match, oh, number nine, okay, good, I can fill that one now on the page. Uh, you know, usually based around a movie or series you really liked. I mean, maybe I'm showing my age here, but I really was fond of uh the first one I remember the primordial rosebud sled for me was uh Batman 1989. Um but uh but yeah, anyway, point is I thought, well, okay, so with Backer Kit, they make it easier to track a bunch of stuff that you know, so you can have not only a reward for um, all your backers, but you can have a reward for returning backers. It can tell who got you last time, even if it was mm-hmm. on another platform. And, of course, you know, there's always the early incentive. Who backs us in the first 48 hours? So that's, like, three different rewards. I thought, God, what mm. am I going to... One of them's going to be a hat. One of them's going to be... what? You know, what am I going to... Oh, I know. Sticker page. One sticker is half the page flash fiction, an original piece of little fiction. Um, that's for everybody who backs us. And then uh, for people in the first 48 hours, uh, we got a piece of art to go with that little flash fiction. And then, finally, the um, returning backers... Uh, sorry, got the art. First 48 hours get the uh something silly we did last year that we ended up falling in love with which was put a cocktail recipe with an sns theme <laughs> at the back of each issue with an illustration uh, yeah. and, and don't worry and actually last year we, I, well, I wish we'd held on to it last year we did a vagerelle cocktail uh, in one issue and the Elric in the number one uh, made sense mm. to us uh, and there are good cocktails actually as uh, kevin our social media guy makes them and, and tests them and they are quite tasty uh so this year we'll have two more of those and they'll be stickers and for people who missed the first 48 hours or are not returning back or you can get them for a dollar as an add-on you know so don't it's not like full scarcity, um. So then you know, that's something else kind of fun we we were doing this year that I really appreciate. And uh, I'm an you know, absolute sucker for everything. that
0: type of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah Although a... I I do have a ridiculous amount now of like iron on or so on jacket patches, um, from things like sci-fi RPGs that I've never even got round to reading, and stickers and various <laughs> other bits and pieces. I think they're all, they're all just scattered around the house, gathering dust or in drawers where you know from when i opened them but i still can't help myself i love that type of thing but you know what you' got to reward people for a bit of faith, haven't you so well yeah. exactly Good for exactly
1: you. make it special plus I mean my feeling with the stickers is you put them in the book and there you go, right? Mm. <laughs> I did consider patches, I do like the idea, but you know it's true so with certain things, they sound fun individually, but once you get enough of them, it's like I've only got so many jackets and backpacks <laughs> that I can <laughs> cover right. in these things uh, yeah, so yeah. so i felt I felt like something that's going to be a part of the book was the way to go um, so I mean between the stickers and the you know for the hardcover edition uh bookmark ribbons and we have... I have had sort of stealth stretch goals that we didn't announce, but I, I, have, I have in the budget. And one of them is another upgrade for our hardcovers, actually. So I don't want to... Do I give it away? You know what? I'll be nice. I'll give it away. All right. So barring catastrophe, uh, which I don't think will happen between now and the end of the crowdfund, we have raised enough, or on the cusp of raising enough, we're, we're doing it, goddammit. Um, I want to do nice... End pages for the hardcovers. Now, for those of you who don't know the term, but you've definitely seen this, don't worry. Basically, when you get a nice hardcover and you open it up right between the cover and the very first bit of paper, uh, and there's like a repeating pattern or a painting uh that's what end pages are and you'll see that again on the other side of the book usually identical um mm. so the hardcovers, um i found a really wonderful artist whose name escapes me of course christ uh, and i think no no uh they have an alias babe and oak so maybe it's a duo and i don't realize i'm dumb uh but uh, anyway babe and oak offering a uh, not far out of toronto actually it was fun um they are really good at making lovely repeating patterns of various kinds uh, I chose uh, to go with a scatter pattern, which basically means something where it's not just straight lines up and down, but the, the elements are scattered in a way that creates a sense of depth. You know, they showed me a lovely example that looked like if you were lying on your back and full leaves were coming down towards you. And I thought, well, okay, what if we have like an inky black void? Now, we're still working on the design, so we'll see what the final thing is. But what if we have like a, a big two-page spread, right, because that's how it works for the end page, of an inky black void with a more uh, detailed version of the uh, Ness battle axe, our logo with a face looking back and forward, uh, kind of swirling, and maybe like, you know, literal serpents and sort of magical, you know, sparks and what have you, sorcery of various color, uh, all against that black void, you know, floating around in this way that creates a sense of depth, like you're falling through a pit of sword and sorcery. I don't know. We'll see what, We'll see how it comes out at the end. But I'm so excited to get that into the magazine. And it's, we might even find a way to make it more specific still to the individual hardcover uh, issue that you get, because those who read us already know this, um, what I love to do is each issue, we uh, make the logo two different colors that are pulled from the cover arch, right? So say there's a really vivid um, orange and a really vivid... Uh, blue black that was issue two okay that's the logo then it's orange and blue black and then uh, so for this it's like the the ribbons are going to be one of those two colors but bookmark ribbons but also i'm hoping to maybe customize a little bit the end pages so that some of the sorcery will be let's say orange and blue black if we've done it with issue two uh so this is uh to give you an idea of just how bloody anal retentive i am but i'd like to think <laughs> the end result is you get something very particular for yourself and the hardcovers are very much um, we're not trying to create artificial scarcity, I promise. It's just the case of they're a bit more expensive to print, so we don't print anywhere near as many as the soft softcovers. Um, and so if you really like the idea of getting a hardcover magazine with things like the bookmark, ribbon, and so on, uh, the in-pages, uh, definitely check out the crowdfund, because uh, as of now, we have a few copies left of issue two uh, in hardcover, which are uh, as an add-on uh, on the thing, why not? Um, but we sold out of number one, as you can imagine, uh, with Michael in there, uh, about a month before. Uh, the crowd hadn't even launched, and that's it. Mm. I I'm actually getting very precious about my copy because if it got destroyed, I couldn't, uh. or lost, or whatever, I couldn't replace it. Uh, you know, not unless I had five thousand dollars just lying around. Because this is the thing; it's mm. it's about scale. Uh, it costs a lot to print a lot of them. Uh, to print the magazine, um, pardon me, the hardcovers individually. And the only reason we can even afford to really do it. Is because, sorry, you're getting a bit wonky, but for those who like this kind of detail, um, is the interior is the same as our soft covers. So, in a sense, it's like we're printing a thousand copies, even though we're really only printing like 900 soft cover and about 125, maybe more this year, uh, hard covers. So, yeah, it's actually a, it's a way to affordably do a ridiculously low print run, but we can't do it for a reprint uh, mm. because it just doesn't work out economically. So, yeah, if you like the idea of a gorgeous hardcover, get in there on the the crowdfund. Uh, I promise you. this is just me saying it as a, a collector to another collector, not the guy selling the thing. Um, yeah. Well,
0: you know what? I've already backed it for the hardcovers. Um, everybody listening, get on backer kit. It's uh, New Edge Sword and Sorcery, issues 3 and 4. Closes on March the 15th. So get in there and get back in. So, before we finish, now, a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago, when we were arranging this, we had a a slight abortive date, but you mentioned that you had a narrow slot on one of the dates we were considering because your gaming group was coming round. And because I have constant gaming envy, my last question is to you What are you playing at the moment?
1: Oh, okay. Well, uh I am uh, playing, uh, uh it's been running a, a little while now. I kind of got stretched out by, you know, Covid's more intense period there, but uh, about four or five years, I guess we've been going now with a Dungeon Crawl Classic. Uh, I am a big fan of it. Uh, it's funny, I didn't actually play any D&D or D&D-like games uh, until not too many years ago when I tried Beyond the Wall, which is lovely mm-hmm. in its own right. But when I was wrapping that up, I was looking over at uh, ads I was seeing for Dungeon Crawl Classic and just hearing how wild it was, you know, the magic system. Every spell gets like two pages in the rulebook, which sounds onerous until you realize yeah. there's actually very little description you need to read for the spell. And then there's a huge table because it's so wild and random and you can yeah. pump up the results dramatically by doing something called spell burn, which basically means you cut off your finger and say, oh, blood for Ariok, <laughs> and you get plus 10 on the, the die result, right? So then you yeah. can go, you can make that sleep spell go from just, all oh, these goblins in front of us fall over for five minutes or whatever, to uh, the top result, which a player in my campaign has done twice now. Uh, every single living creature, even plants, close their petals or whatever. Every single living thing within 500 meters falls asleep until you decide they don't. So you can do—you <laughs> can just say they sleep until they starve to death. They can sleep yeah. until the moon turns full. They can sleep until somebody eats a crumpet within this radius, whatever the hell you feel like. Uh, and that's just the sleep spell. Good old sleep gets so much more fun and exciting once you get into the you know the higher uh, end results of that spell. And there's plenty of other, you know, ones just in their base premise are more crazy. The Warriors are lots of fun I like because um, I personally have played many, you know, I came up with the RPGs in the 90s. And this is, I think, when you started to get increased complexity in role playing games in the sense Mm. of uh, individual characters would start getting like lots of feats and special abilities that would get hard to track as you got up in levels. Um, and warriors even, though, to make them interesting. They've got the jump kick feet, and they've got the, the parry feet, and it's like after a while you've just got like nine buttons almost to press with your warrior, and you just forget about them half the time during combat. Dungeon Core Classics does something really elegant, where the warriors have something called the Mighty D die, and so instead of having a million things to remember or whatever, you just go, well alright, when I roll to attack, if I get a three or a higher on the Mighty D die that you roll in tandem with your d20, uh, it also adds to, to hit and your damage, so it makes warriors fiercer, right? If you get a three or higher, And you say, "Uh, I'm going to try and grab the chandelier, slide off it and kick the guy in the nuts okay and then you know i hit him and i got a three or higher and the gm then goes okay i'm going to interpret this then and then and the gm just tells you you know how it looks but also how that gives you a bonus and more damage or the guy gets not prone or whatever so you know even even the humble warriors is is more interesting i feel uh and, and yeah it's just sort of the classic classes uh you know and, and, and it does racist class you've got elves dwarves, and uh i think you said hobbits wow halflings um but then just good in the games overall uh i think the two well again lost in detail the two things that make me love dungeon crawl classic and everything else they do adjacent because they've got mutant crawl classic and they've got specific settings like dungeon crawl classic lankmar which is a super legit wonderful thing i love that um and they've just come out uh, recently with dcc dying earth uh where you can play as a fancy vat thing or or essentially kugel the clever they call it the wayfarer uh and his uh, relationship to luck is a, a cyclical thing that kind of mirrors how kugel would sort of get in and out of trouble it's really fun at the table Um, but, but overall, the ethos that infuses everything they do, because, I mean, I could fill another two hours talking about that, um, is a sense of, uh, let's streamline things in a way that lets you engage your imagination. So, like I say, the Mighty D thing, or the fact that there are no actual skills, it's more like, well, just infer from whatever your character's profession was before they became an adventurer. If they're a beekeeper, they probably aren't very good at navigation, so don't give a, get a bonus on that. (laughs) You know, whatever. Uh, but, um... Even even though the rulebook's a tome, once you realise that a lot of it's just spell tables, uh, it's actually pretty quick to pick up and a lot of fun. And and also, the other thing I like, aside from the fact that it tends to go more for do what's cool and fun and and using your imagination, Uh, and this is also in the modules and how they're written, they're wild modules. Um, It also is really rooted in the literature and in fact played a part in putting me on the path to doing the magazine. Uh, because mm. in the back of the main book, it not only has the Appendix N uh, reading list reprinted, uh, mm-hmm. originally from 1979's uh, Advanced Dungeon Master Guide. Uh, for the, anybody listening who doesn't know, that was a list of uh, texts and authors who inspired Gary Gygax when he was co-creating the thing uh Dindy. Um So not only does it have that list, but it just has a long kind of love letter to that list explaining why it matters and saying you know, and why it's you know, fun to go through secondhand bookstores and try and tick things off from it and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, I just think that's really cool because I, as you can guess from everything else I've said today, I really believe strongly in the importance of understanding and checking out uh, the history of the genre that you love, uh, whether or not you want to be a writer uh, or a publisher. Uh, so the fact that they have that ethos woven into uh, my hobby uh, is is just wonderful. Uh, so it's combining all the things that I love, uh, and and uh, don't tell any of my players who I, I don't know that they'll listen to this, but right now uh, for anyone who plays DCC, you'll get a kick out of it hearing perhaps. Uh, all my characters are level three, and I can't wait till they get to four because I'm trying to get them to the purple planet, which is the DCC big box set of essentially Sword and Planet. Mm. <laughs> and you you came through an Edgar Rice Burrows, you know conceit, you just go whoop, and they wind up on a planet with a dying purple sun and big weird mushrooms that you've got to eat to survive, and you know, oh, oh it's great stuff. I love it. Uh, so we're, we're almost there. We're almost there. And uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a great system. I love it. I I, I do big day long games once a month on Sunday. Uh, on the mm. second
0: sunday it's, just, it's a riot i love it i'm in no way envious but i do love dungeon crawl classics and mutant crawl classics because they're the only paperback role-playing manuals i've ever come across that are so chunky you can stand them up on edge and they don't fall over they are so <laughs> chunky and stable it is absolutely ridiculous those books are built but you know what on that note Thanks for dropping by again, Oliver. we will love to hear your thoughts. we will love to hear all these um, musings on all of this stuff. And uh, thanks for dropping by.
1: Thanks for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. And hey, everyone, yeah, just go to backerkit.com and search for New Age. Uh, so and sorcery, we're the only one, I promise. And I'm sure there'll be a link in the, the show
0: notes. Uh, thanks, mate. They certainly will. All right, Cheers, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> massive thanks to oliver for dropping by derry and toms again to tell us about his experience working with mike and the next phase of new edge sword and sorcery i'll pop all the appropriate links in the show notes but do check out new edge sword and sorcery on BackerKit. kit and thanks as always to our patrons for keeping this show on the road those without tear anthony Piconti, tim cardos dave dempster and sebastian wheatabix and our Chaos Engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Spong, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner-Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, Jim Jupp, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Ofer Ziv, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, and, new to the Don Blass, Dan Charnley. As is traditional, I dropped down a line to see where he is and what he digs, and he said, "'Your podcast was introduced to me via Tony Esmond of the Awesome Comics Podcast.'" Now here is something for you. I have to admit, I've never read a Mocock book. I met him in 1994 when he came to the Preston Speculative Fiction Group meeting, a now long-defunct group in my hometown. Yes, I'm UK-based and live in Preston. Here is a link if you're interested. Anyway, he's been on my list to read for years. But i'm a big horror fan and just trying to keep up with those is bad enough i'm currently trying to complete my collection of new english library horror titles plus guy and smith books plus some westerns those are the ones i always find a piece of torn toilet paper that has been used as a bookmark i make sure i wash my hands after reading the list goes on so what do you recommend i start with apart from time of the hawk lords i'm saving that for my holidays i love your episodes about the horror stuff the biker mania one was epic however I'm trying to catch up on them all. That's amazing, thanks Dan. And thanks Tony of the Actually Awesome Awesome Comics podcast too for sending Dan our way. I'll stick the link to that Preston Speculative Fiction blog post in the show notes. It's a great read. Dan is also a podcaster and an artist. You can find him on Instagram as @dan'smonsters and YouTube at youtube.com slash Club. His podcast is on Spotify and it's called Dan Rambles. And he rambles about all things close to my heart or you can find it and his art through his patreon at patreon.com dan's monsters i listened to a couple of episodes of dan rambles and i think a lot of us will find that what he's talking about is very identifiable it's amazing how many of us are out there and on that score we had a comment on youtube this week from loris arvendu who said it's 1974-ish and i'm 12 years old on the way to and from school i have to walk through the town center and the big WH Smith newsagent is open. It's one of those shops on a corner, with two entrances, and you can walk straight through it on the way. But being an avid reader of science fiction, I stop at the paperback section, where I start seeing these Mayflower books, with Moorcock, in big white letters on a strange, surrealistic cover. I read the back. They say Michael Moorcock is one of the foremost writers of science fantasy, so I cautiously buy one, not really sure what I'm in for. Since up until then... I've only been reading Arthur C. Clarke, Brian Aldiss, and Isaac Asimov novels with Spaceships by Chris Foss on the covers. The first book I get has a weird picture on the cover of the top of a man's head with a black jewel in his forehead. It's 25p, which is probably my pocket money for a week, but my god, it's worth it and I'm immediately hooked. Over the next few years I buy every Mocock book I can get my hands on, some as soon as they appear in print, and he quickly becomes my absolute favourite author. That first book was, of course, the jewel in the skull. Thanks for that chum. Always great to hear about this stuff. We also had a WH Smith with two entrances in Hull that was a thoroughfare from the bus station and I regularly got stuck in there looking at books and Crash magazine. And of course thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Christian Hundal, Eliel Westernra, Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, Toby White and Thanasis Beltios. And eternal thanks to our patron demons Alistair Davison, Andy Clark, Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Glenn Sawyer, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Janie Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monte, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Maris Litauskas, Miles Reed Labato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, Tony Malazzo, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Right, enough from me, don't forget you can follow us on twitter and instagram with the handle at breakfast ruins you can email us at breakfast at outlook.com the web page is breakfast in the bit our breakfast in the ruins radio is live on radio garden or via the web player at breakfast in the we have our patreon page too and there are a few extra odds and sods on there but for now take care stay safe and we will meet again soon on the moonbeam roads <laughs>